You know, if you are as distressed by the current political discourse that I am, listen to this. I read this about a presidential race. Murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent by the cries of distress, the soil soaked with blood, the nation black with crimes. Where is the heart that can contemplate such a, such a scene without shivering with horror? This dire prediction came from the New England current on the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800. But I'm more distressed when this kind of discourse creeps into the church. My former colleague, Tom Rayner, who is now the president of Lifeway Christian Resources, has done extensive research on church dropouts. And he concludes, contrary to what people think, the unchurched are not turned off by all the hypocrisy among Christians. After all, we live in an age where anything goes. But they are turned off when Christians turn against other Christians, when they treat other Christians poorly and they talk but don't listen and they have these holier-than-thou attitudes. It was in 1979, and I was a fledgling faculty member at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was attending my first Southern Baptist Convention other than the times when my parents took me as a little tot. It was in Houston, and I had been speaking in Washington, D.C., and so I flew in alone. I unpacked my, in my hotel room, and I thought I would go over to the pastor's conference. I was by myself. The speaker was a famed evangelist in those days, and he was railing against the seminaries and the seminary professors who were wrecking the faith of young God-called men. He used an illustration. If a rattlesnake crawls into your baby's crib, what would you do? His harangue elicited wild cheers from the crowd. I tried to comfort myself that the church is much like a swimming pool. All of the noise comes from the shallow end. But to be honest, I felt like a Jew that had somehow wandered by mistake into a Nazi party rally. Because I was not joining in to the excited applause, the people around me started to give me the evil eye. I felt like Peter warming himself by the fire in the high priest's courtyard and folks saying, aren't you one of them? That, converse, that convention started a bitter denominational fight that lasted many years. It's ancient history to most of you, ancient history that is about as relevant as Israel's battles with the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites. But this summer I was reminded that some of those clashes still continue. They afflict seminaries and churches. 
I was speaking at the Lagos Software Pastorum in Chicago. They brought in a passel of biblical scholars around the country to speak, and it was good to meet new friends and chat with old friends as we were waiting around in the green room before going on stage to do our thing. And I asked a, a new co a colleague that I just met about a friend who had just left Wheaton to go to his school and then had just recently left to go to a school in Scotland. And I asked, why did he leave so soon? And he said, well, he ran afoul of some of the theology professors because of his views on justification by faith. He tried to explain the fine points to me, but to be honest with you, I'm theologically tone deaf. I could not understand all the distinctions. And then... I rode back on the shuttle to our hotel, sitting next to a guy who had just been through bitter controversy, finally had to leave his school, had left to another school in Philadelphia. The person who had been leading the attack against him had taken his place at that school. At the crack of dawn, I hitched a ride with one of the persons who attended the conference, he teaches at a seminary in Florida, and he was telling me about a prof that, that used to come regularly to teach for them, but they just hired a new professor, and the folks at Southern Seminary regarded him as a heretic, and so they would not allow this person to come anymore. I was reminded of Garrison Keillor's parody of his religious heritage in Lake Wobegon days. He says... He came from an exclusive group that believed in keeping itself pure of false doctrine by, associate, by avoiding association with the impure. He writes, We made sure that anyone who fellowshiped with us, were straight, they were straight on all the details of the faith. Unfortunately, he writes, the firebrand founders turned their guns on each other. Scholarly to the core and perfect literalists, everyone, they set to arguing over points that to any outsider would have seen very minor indeed, but which to them were crucial to the faith, including the question, if believer A is associated with believer B, who has somehow associated himself with C, who holds a false doctrine, must D break off association with A, even though A does not hold the doctrine to avoid the taint? The correct answer is yes. Some, however, felt that D should only speak with A and urge him to break off with B. The ones who felt otherwise promptly broke off with them. I can see why folks drop out, don't want anything to do with us. It goes back a long way. John comes and proudly announces to Jesus that we spied someone casting out demons in your name and we stopped them cold. The reason for interfering, they were not following us. They were not following us. And their reaction drips with irony in Mark's narrative. They're the beginning of the chapter. The disciples have recently bungled an exorcism. Jesus descends from the Mount of Transfiguration only to find the rest of his disciples engaged in a brouhaha with a contingent of scribes. 
He asks what's going on, and a father from the crowd speaks up and says, I brought my son to you. He has an evil spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds at it, grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Disciples are impotent against this evil power, and all they can do is point fingers at one another and bicker with the scribes who are taunting them for botching the deal. The scribes can't do anything either. But they share the attitude that affects many churches and denominations today. Well, we're not doing that well, but at least they're doing worse. It's ironic that the disciples who woefully demonstrated their ineffectualness in casting out a demon do not hesitate a moment to obstruct those who are successful because they were not following them. Jesus catches them by surprise. He doesn't commend their vigilance. He doesn't say, good job, boys. Way to keep a sharp eye out for the outsiders. He reproves them. Don't forbid them. His response recalls Moses' reply to Joshua when Joshua implored Moses to do something about all these unauthorized prophets running around with their online prophecy degrees. Moses, my Lord, stop them. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put their spirit on all of them. And are the disciples jealous for Jesus' sake or for themselves? Do they want to be stop these do they want to stop these successful exorcists because they want to corner the market on exorcism so that they will be indispensable so that they will be revered and celebrated? Jesus' undogmatic openness to others will trouble anyone who's more interested in establishing the lines of who is in and who is out rather than fighting the enemy. Because the enemy becomes those who do not follow us. They don't do it right, which means they simply don't do it our way or don't pay homage to us. This kind of intolerance insists that God only works through those whom we vetted first and meet our standards. But this passage seems to say that if you're going to go along with Jesus, you've got to get along with others. And we must recognize that good comes from circles outside of us. I don't want to go into the question how far outside. If I were here next week, I would preach another sermon about the sons of Sceva who tried to power, pirate the power of Jesus. But I'm just concerned about Christian jingoism that turns people away from Christ. The title of this sermon comes from the title of a book by my friend and former colleague, Bill Leonard, who got his title from the title of a sermon, a Southern Baptist Convention sermon that was preached in 1948. 
the preacher had no doubt that God can only work through Southern Baptists. He says, I am more tremendously convinced than ever before that the last hope, the fairest hope, the only hope for evangelizing the world is the Southern Baptist people represented in this convention. Mark's text should cause us to reflect on our role and the role of others with more humility. Our mission in the God's mission in the role in the world is bigger than us and sometimes our infighting and all that kind of thing can cause our mission to run aground. Doug Weaver reminds us of a sobering fact from history that in 1266, the Mongol Empire stretched all of Asia from the Black Sea to the Pacific Ocean. And Kublai Khan, the emperor, asked Marco Polo, will you go and ask the Christian church in Rome to send 100 men to teach Christianity to, uh, to, to my court? The Christians were in such disarray fighting among themselves that it took 28 years before one, not 100, reached the great court. And already retired, the emperor said, it's too late. It's too late. I've grown old in my idolatry. But this summer, I had a vision I was speaking at a pastor's conference at Austin Graduate School of Theology. It is a Church of Christ, non-instrumental school. I pastored in Kentucky, and you have a little country church, and about a third of the people in my church have been kicked out of the Church of Christ Street down the Church of Christ Church down the, down the street. So I had a kind of an image. That was not positive, but I've never felt such spiritual kinship with these folks. And then when they sang a cappella from a new hymnal from the Psalter, I, I may not have been taken up into the third heaven, but at least the first heaven. As they all sang in parts, it was so moving to me. But then later I spoke at a pastor's conference in Indola, Zambia. And the pastors were singing in their native Bemba. And I knew some of their stories. And I was definitely taken up into the third heaven. And then I went to the biennial meeting of the Association of Theological Schools in Minneapolis, do not expect spiritual inspiration. My dear friend is Dan Alshire, is executive director, and he always says something wise. He's truly a wise man. But you still don't expect. And we were arguing about various things, taking different positions on business session. But then we had a worship time, and we were singing through another new hymnal on the Psalter. And here you've got, out of representing 270-some or more schools, the whole spectrum of theology. It's like a religious zoo, and some of them are scarlet with heresy. But we sang, and it was truly moving. 
that here we are, people who argue with one another, disagree with others, but we sang together, and I realized this is something that Christians do. There are other times that you can come and sing here in this chapel. And maybe the experience here will happen as it happened to me this summer or back in 1979 when that evangelist stopped ranting and we started to sing a good old Baptist hymn. And the woman next to me who's been giving me sidelong glances started to sing in this beatific voice. And it's always good to sing next to someone who can really sing. And the tears were running down her cheeks as we all sang together. And at the end, she reached out to me, gave me a hug, and said, God bless you. I was thinking, man, I'm going to be looking for another job. They're out for blood. But she said, God bless you. When we sing together, something happens. But you see the problem? Today we argue more about music than we do theology. They don't do it the right way. They don't sing my kind of songs. They don't use the right instruments. But God speaks to us when we can sing together. I hope you'll come to chapel and worship God, sing praise to God, hear God's word this semester. God bless you.